So, we're, no surprise, we're still in Acts. We're going to be at the beginning of Acts 4. You may have guessed that it is printed on your song sheet. Let's get into it. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and were, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Oh man, the wind. Annas, the priest, the high priest was there, and, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus, the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could, they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to, no longer, to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? But you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. Because they could not decide how to punish them. Because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I am also one of the pastors here. Like Heather has said, like so many have said, it is so good to have you with us, to see you. What, what a delight. Just what a delight you all are. I, I want to pray just to begin our time. And I don't know how you're coming into this space. Maybe today feels really celebratory and like a big moment of relief because we all get to be together. And you're like, yes, this is the thing. And I feel energized and I feel pumped and I'm ready to dance. And that's how you feel. 
you are welcome here. But maybe this week has been just tiring and hard and exhausting. I was with my house church on Friday, and that felt like that was actually the theme, is that people felt tired, just worn out. Maybe in the midst of hearing news about Breonna Taylor's trial, you feel like you are lamenting and crying out for justice, and I want you to know that you are welcome here. Maybe the anxiety and the grief of COVID-19 and just the pressure of those things, I want you to know that you are welcome here and that regardless of how you come and enter this space, God promises to meet you, to be present to you. So, Mr. let me pray for us right now that we would be attentive to a God who promises to always be present to us no matter what we bring, no matter where we come from, and no matter what it is that we're wrestling through. Mr. let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are with us. That through your spirit, you are present to your people. And that no matter what happens in this moment or where we leave and how we feel and where we go, that you have promised to be present to us. To meet us in the midst of chaos and anxiety or rejoicing and celebration. To always hover over the surface of our lives, no matter what the context underneath, you have promised to be with us. So God, today, as we hear your story declared, as we sing songs, as we gather at the table in this kind of dispersed way, would we be uniquely attentive to the way you are present to us, what it is that you are saying to us, how it is you are speaking a story of hope and grace and comfort in the midst of whatever it is that we're in. So God, help us to hear you, be attentive to you, and today, would we just know you more? In your name we say, amen. Man, Missio. Well, we are in a series right now called The Missio Day. And now that's our name, Missio Day. But it is also a concept. You could say like a theological idea that means God is on mission. Missio Dei, Latin for the mission of God. And we believe that God is on mission, that God is up to something in the world around us, and that he's calling and inviting and beckoning the church to participate in the thing that he is doing in the world around us. And so what we wanted to do as we enter into the fall is to say, well, what is the thing that God is up to? What is the mission of God in the world around us? What is God accomplishing? What is God fermenting? What is it that's happening under the surface and in the midst of us? And how do we join in the thing that God is doing in the world around us? Because we begin to answer those questions, and as we press into those questions, hopefully what it reveals is what it means to be the church. The people who join the mission of God where they are, as they are. And even more specifically, hopefully it reveals to us what it means to be us. This community, the people of Jesus in the midst of Salt Lake City, figuring out what it looks like to join God's mission here and now. Last week, we began in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, we see the story of Jesus pouring out his spirit onto the church. And it takes us back to Joel when the prophet promises to pour, that God is going to pour out his spirit on the all people. And it's in that moment when the spirit is poured out that the church is born and called to participate with God in the renewal of all things. And it's this big and this beautiful and this amazing picture of what God is doing. And so that's what we talked about last week. But today, the question that we want to ask is this. What does that mean for us? 
If God has called the church to participate in the renewal of all things, if God has filled his people with his spirit, what does that actually mean for us? It's people in Salt Lake City. It's just regular humans. What does it mean for us to participate in the thing that God is doing? And maybe that sounds like a simple question, but I think it's also kind of a difficult question to answer. Because we bring to that question a lot of assumptions or ideas about what makes a person able to do great things. Or what makes a person competent and qualified. We bring a lot of assumptions or ideas about what kind of people God works through, what kind of people society celebrates, what kind of people are considered worthy of admiration and leadership. And those ideas and those assumptions, well, they shape how we talk about this question. Maybe for some of you, when you think about competence or qualification, you think about education. Like if a person is educated, they are therefore competent. I don't know how many of you are on TikTok, but if you are on TikTok, there's been a trend, so I just might have revealed my age. But if you are on TikTok, I feel like there's this trend that's going around right now where someone says their education and then they explain something to you. So like recently I saw one and it was a woman and she was like, I'm a second year poli-sci student, so let me explain to you democracy. Right? And it's like, it's like this notion that education shapes or forms some kind of expertise. And if you're educated, then you have expertise and the ability to speak into a subject. This week, I also I got to interview um, a poet named Micah Bornays. And if you were with us four years ago, Micah came out here during our series, Kingdom of Color, and did spoken word on the Missio stage. And he's about to come out with a book, and there's a poem in the book that is about Shakespeare. And I was interviewing Micah about this like poem. And one of the things that Micah said that was so powerful is he's like, Shakespeare was allowed to invent 17,000 words and we call Shakespeare a genius. But if a rap artist invents a word, we call it slang. We have a perception that shapes how we evaluate certain things, whether it's good or whether it's bad, whether it's genius or whether it's slang, whether it's worthy and capable and qualified or whether it's not. And maybe it's not education for you. Maybe it's occupation. Like these people, because of their occupation, are worthy to be followed. They're capable and competent because they have a certain kind of occupation. Maybe it's because they have a white-collar occupation, therefore they are leaders. Maybe it's not occupation, maybe it's age. Someone is old enough to be respected and authoritative. Maybe it's not age, maybe it's gender, that this person is the right gender to be respected and authoritative. We bring assumptions to what it looks like to be competent and qualified and even called. And those assumptions that we hold kind of on accident. I don't think we mean to do this. They bleed into how we see the story of Jesus and they shape how we understand who God is calling and how God is speaking and moving through his people. And so maybe we wouldn't say they need to be educated in this way, but we bring that same kind of presentation and assumptions to followers of Jesus. I hear this a lot when I talk to house church leaders and it's, it's like kind of like two stories. Like one time, most of the stories that I get from house church leaders is that they don't feel qualified to lead because they're not theologically educated. I had a house church leader say this to me 
which I think is a beautiful thing. I think I've actually said this story before, but it's such a beautiful summary of the way we do this. A house church leader told me, they're like, I don't think I can be a house church leader because I can't sum up everybody's theological questions into a five-minute sermon at the end of the evening. That notion that he has to do that means that he has an assumption about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. You have to have these proficiencies, these expertise, this kind of knowledge that always fluxes in this kind of way. Now, sometimes it's the other side of that. It's not that I can't do it. It's the other side, which is like, because I have this degree, let me lead everything, which I also see happen in the church. Because I've fit this kind of criteria, you should just bend over and hand me the keys. I am worthy of leadership because I fit this kind of mold. The problem is that if we read the Bible, which we should probably do as followers of Jesus, if we read the story of God throughout the Bible, what we see is just a different kind of thing. All throughout the story of Scripture, we see people wrestling to put criteria on who God works through, what God is doing, where God is doing it. Like us, the people in the Bible often want to apply criteria to who is invited into God's work. But God has a constant habit of disrupting our criteria. God has a constant habit of disrupting the assumptions, the ideas, the criteria that we try to apply to one another and try to apply to ourselves. This is exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 4. We see this story of something miraculous has just happened in the life of Peter and John. The echo on the back of that is intense. I'm sorry if you're sitting in the back. We see something miraculous happen in the life of Peter and John. They're about this ministry that Jesus has just called them into, and it's new and it's fresh, and nobody knows exactly what's happening. And they're preaching the story of Jesus, and then they get to participate in the healing of a disabled man who is begging for money. And out of that moment, they continue to preach the gospel. And so people come to believe in the story of Jesus. And the religious leaders who thought they had ended the Jesus movement by killing Jesus, they hear about it. They come to Peter and John. They take them, and then they begin to question them. And hear the question that the religious leaders ask. It's this. Acts 4, verse 7. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. And they said this, by what power or name did you do this? Now, it's not that they don't know the Jesus movement, right? They know the story of Jesus, the Jesus movement, and they know it because these are the people who killed Jesus. They know the movement. What they're asking is, how are you doing this? Because we thought we crushed this movement. We thought we ended the story that would propel you into this kind of work. We thought it was over and done. And so to see people telling the story, living the story, and to see power flexing in this way leaves them confused because they cannot understand power that would come from such ordinary weakness. 
The religious leaders cannot understand a power that would come from something so ordinary and as weak as death and these uneducated, ordinary leaders. They cannot understand a power that would come from something so ordinary. They say this themselves in verse 13. When the religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were astonished. The religious leaders had a criteria that they were looking for. A power, a pedigree, a set of performances, a set of professionalisms that they were searching for. A set of assumptions about where God works, how God works, and who God works through. And they applied it to this moment that God works in these ways. And those ways were probably our ways. That God works through people who look like us and acts like us and has the education that we do and has the criterias that we do. That's who God works through. And so we don't have the imagination or the framework for understanding this thing that's unfolding in you. And so therefore it can't be good. They miss that God is up to extraordinary things through the most ordinary human means. They miss that God is up to the most extraordinary things, but in the most ordinary of human means. And that is always how God seems to work throughout the story of the Bible. Abraham and Sarah, so ordinary. Moses is a stuttering prophet, so ordinary. God literally says that he calls Israel because of their weakness, not their strength. So ordinary. Even Jesus. It is God in human, ordinary form. And the story that we just told last week, Pentecost, God pours out his spirit in who? Ordinary humans, about 120, about this many people. That's the way that Jesus chooses to do church? It is crazy because it is so ordinary, so regular, so disruptive to the way that we think the world is supposed to work, the way that we think God is supposed to work. It is so ordinary. And if we're honest, I think for a lot of us, it is also very threatening that God would work through such ordinary human means. It is threatening because most of us, myself maybe chief of all, have built our lives on a worldly understanding of authority and power. Our names and our power that we adhere to are ones that are familiar to the world. Education, vocation, climbing the ladder, whatever it is, we have invested ourselves in names and power that the world is familiar with. And so when Jesus says that he's working through ordinary means, or we see the Spirit working through ordinary means, that is a threat to our very identity, how I see myself. It's a threat to the status quo, to the world that I have built that identity upon. I don't know if you've ever, uh, this is challenging for me. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation 
with somebody who supposedly knows less than you and then just gotten totally schooled. It's threatening in that kind of way. This like idea that you had authority is challenged by the ordinary. And so it can be threatening to those of us who have built our lives on a worldly sense of authority and power. And yet at the same time, it is also very good news to those of us who have done that. Because normally, when we build our lives on worldly authority or power, what we're actually doing is working to manage anxiety, manage fear. In fact, I think you could say that the world's authority structures are actually built to control and manage anxiety. It's a notion that if I can accomplish enough things or if I can have enough credentials or if I can have enough authority, then I can mitigate and manage the anxiety that I feel. I was talking to my doctoral advisor recently, and he's a Christian, he's a pastor, he's been a pastor for a long time, and we were talking about COVID-19, and he was like, you know how pastors are going to respond to COVID-19? And I was like, how? He's like, they're going to go get more degrees. Because that's the way that we have taught religious leaders to deal with anxiety, is to get more education. And I felt personally attacked by that statement. But it's totally true. It's like the notion if I can know enough things, if I can know what is happening in this unknown space, which is an oxymoron, then I can control it. I can manage the anxiety. If I can just know what December of 2020 looks like, then Missio will be okay. But I can't. And an attempt to know those things places a weight on me that is far too heavy. I think in a, in a smaller way, I think this is why so many of us are afraid to like practice the way of Jesus in non-Christian spaces. Like to practice the way of Jesus in our workplaces or to practice the way of Jesus in our neighborhoods or with our families. It's this same kind of pressure. We've made it being a follower of Jesus about knowing the right things or having the right kind of authority or having the right kind of credentials. And so we're afraid of following Jesus in our workplaces because like, well, what if we get asked something and I don't know the answer? Or what if something challenges me, challenges me in a way that I can't control? And so that fear stops us from unfolding the thing that God is calling us into. And here's how it is good news. Is that God just does not seem to care about your credentials. That's a word for me. He doesn't care about mine. Instead, our ability to participate in the thing that God is doing comes from something totally different. And the text actually tells us where it comes from. We get two answers. In 4 verse 8, we see this. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke to them. And then in verse 12, the text says this. Peter is preaching to them and he says this. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Religious leaders ask, by what power and name do you do this? And Peter actually answers. The power and authority comes from God. Now that's almost a frustrating answer. But we're like, it's not about credentials. And then Peter is like, yeah, it comes from God. And you're like, well, okay. What does that mean? 
And if you're like me and you hear that, like you want to you backload all of your credentials and your criteria back onto that statement. You're like, yeah, that's true, but what about all the things? What about all the things that I'm supposed to be able to do? But the beauty and the simplicity of this are wrapped up to each other. Is that God has gifted you with authority and power. It's not from you. It's not dependent on you. It's not about how awesome you are. It's not about how much of an expert you are. It's not about the credentials that you bring to the table. It's not about your performances or your presentations, how you appear to those around you. These things are true of you, regardless of all of that. And that is beautiful and simple and so threatening to the things that we normally build our identity on. These things are true of you because they are gifted to you. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is not whether they are true or not. It is how do we learn to trust that what God says about us is true? How do we learn to trust that it is true? In Galatians 5, 16, Paul, talking about this like thing that the Spirit is doing, says, now keep in step with the Spirit. I've always really liked that language because it made me think of uh, like a dance. You have a partner who leads. And if you're following that partner, it requires trust. I don't know the next step. I don't know what's happening in this next moment. And so I'm going to trust that this partner who leads me is trustworthy and leading in the right direction. So, Missio, do you trust your partner to lead? Do you trust that the Spirit of God has actually filled you and given you authority and is leading you in the way you should go? Do you trust your partner to lead? And maybe, maybe you're not convinced by that. And the reason I say that is because I was writing this sermon and I was like, I'm not convinced by that. If you're not convinced, you're like, I don't think it's that way. I think it's more complicated. Well, here's what convinced me that this is actually what the text is saying and this is true. And it's this next moment in verse 13. This is why I believe this is true. It's the second part of verse 13, but I'll read you the whole verse. It says this, when the religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that what? These people had been with Jesus. That they had been with Jesus. Not their credentials, not their ability, not the eloquence of their words. The thing that was noticeable about these people is that they had been with Jesus. They knew their partner, that they trusted that God was leading them. I love this so much because if you like, you've grown up in the church at all, you probably know Peter's story, and it is not good. There's a moment that Jesus calls Peter Satan. Nobody wants to hear that. Right? We know the story. He denies Jesus before the cross. There's a moment even after the resurrection where Paul has to confront Peter in Galatia about racism. Like his story is never good. And yet the religious leaders are like, oh, this dude's been with Jesus. 
that's the hallmark of this person. That's the hallmark of this experience that we've had with him, is that he has been with Jesus. See, we are so often convinced that it's our credentials or our authority or our ability that will reveal God to the world around us. And what this moment reminds us is, no, it is ordinary weakness. It is our dependence, our vulnerability, and our trust in Jesus that actually reveals that we have been with him. And as this was true of Peter, this is true of us, Missio. The God of the universe has filled you with his spirit, called you to participate in the work that he is doing, to follow his steps. But we often miss it because we expect God to work through extraordinary means when the truth is he is doing extraordinary things through ordinary human means. We often write ourselves off, like God can't work through me. I don't have the ability. I don't have the credentials. I don't have the education. I don't have the things that I need. So what we need so desperately is a re-education in surprise. To be surprised that God is working through us in those places we do not expect. And we need to learn anew all the time that what we call ordinary is the domain of God's extraordinary. That's where he's percolating and fermenting and doing the thing that he's doing. So, Missio, as we close, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. And then we'll come to the table, and so maybe you can come with these questions on your mind. There's no screen, so you'll have to just remember them. But here's the first one. What assumptions do you bring that stop you from seeing God's work in you and others? What assumptions do you bring that stop you from seeing what God is doing? Assumptions like the religious Pharisees? Assumptions of credential or criteria? Assumptions of gender? Assumptions of race? What assumptions do you bring to the table that stop you from seeing what God is doing? Two, where do you look for power and authority outside of Jesus? You could say it differently. Like, where do you build the sense of security? Where do you build a sense of identity? How do you make yourself feel okay about the work that you are doing? Where do you look for power and authority outside of Jesus? And then finally this. How and where is the Spirit moving inside and around you? Where is God calling you to join to lay down your assumptions and expectations and credentials and to follow the lead of your partner. Now, all around you, there should be uh, a little drawing. And Kristen, our kids director, has made this available, but it's available for anybody. Not everybody is just learns from listening and you want other practices to, to participate. And so there's these like hand drawings. There should be some uh, crayons, crayons near you that you can draw, you can write, And it's for answering this last question. How and where is the Spirit moving inside and around you? Maybe it just takes his time as we come to worship and as as soon as we're done with communion to to express where that is on that drawing. And then Haley is going to collect them near the end. And we're making something of it. And finally, Missio, Let us practice this thing that we've talked about together. Somewhere near you, there should be the elements of communion. And the elements of communion, 
this like very simple practice is the perfect expression of everything that we've said. God gives to his people these ordinary elements, bread and wine. They're not filled with witchcraft magic. It's bread and wine. And yet through these ordinary things, God does something marvelous. And so that's why every week we practice at the table, at the domain of the ordinary, to reimagine that God is doing something so surprising and big and marvelous around us. So Missy, if you would, grab the elements. And I'm going to read to guide us through this process, Paul's words to the church in 1 Corinthians. And Paul says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Mr. would you take the bread? Or the little wafer. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Monsieur, take the cup. My bread is much thicker than yours. <laughs> Missio, God meets you here and is inviting you to join. Let me pray for you and then we'll keep worshiping. God, thank you for the work that you're doing in the midst of us. Today, as we sing, as we worship, and as we gather around these ordinary things, would it reshape how we see the world to know that you are at work in these strange, normal ordinary things doing surprising and extraordinary things. That's true of the bread and cup, and that's true of me and of us. God, help us to know it, see it, and risk in it. In your name we pray. Amen. Missy, we invite you to keep worshiping.